0: The word of God says in Exodus chapter 7 verses 14 through 25. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened, he refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water, stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it shall turn to blood. The fish in the Nile shall die and the Nile will stink and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of the of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals and their ponds and all their pools of water. So that they may become blood, and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all the water of the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house and he did not even he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, so they could not drink the water of the Nile. 7 full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so we're here, plague number 1. And I want to call this one Plague 1, Lots of Blood, But No Repentance. Lots of blood, but no repentance. And it really does have quite the mirror of the final plague to hit Egypt, which will be, of course, the Passover, where there will be a lot of blood. But again, still um, little repentance that being said, you know where do we begin in this? You know, I, I think of a prayer I pray for my friends, and I even tell them I say sometimes it's not great to be my friend, and I'm being facetious because um, this is a great prayer to pray, but. I say, you know, for my friends, I pray, Lord, do whatever it takes to get a hold of their life. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is, uh, Lord, take away what needs to be taken away so they see you um, break whatever needs to be broken in their life so that they might uh, recognize who you are. I I pray for the Lord to have his perfect way in their life and in my life as well. And, of course, this doesn't mean an easy life. This certainly means, one, where we are... um, grabbed a hold of um, by the beauty of the Lord and we repent and turn and believe. So that being said, when I think about God striking Egypt with even these 10 plagues, I see him in in mercy doing it because there's three ways in which God works in this particular portion, this plague number one, and we want to look at those three ways. We're going to see that God shakes up their peace. He shows us our predicament and then he sticks to his plan. and and we're going to see each of these things as really being acts of his mercy but uh let's let's kind of take a step back and just discuss what we're looking at from a macro point of view with all these plagues it's kind of easy to read them and and assume that one happens after the other Um, it's it's also fascinating because really only three of the plagues are given a time frame this first one it's going to say that it lasts seven days then we have um, the the plague of darkness, and that lasts three days. And then we have, of course, when the firstborn dies, the Passover, and that happens at midnight. So it happens in one night. Those are the only three time frames. But do you think that the plagues happen one right after the other? Some people believe that. I, I personally don't think that's necessarily how it went because I think that's not the pattern we we see consistently with how God works. I, I wouldn't be surprised if there was a reprieve in between times, and part of the hardening of hearts that went on was during those times of reprieve, because how often can we forget the conviction or forget the works of God during those times when life seems somewhat normal? Some have suggested that these plagues um, may have occurred over a period of nine months. The Nile rises in July and August. And they suggest that would have been time for plague number one, because as, as Pharaoh goes out to the water, there was a particular event at the time when when the water started rising that they would go and, um, and worship the deities of the Nile, which we'll discuss. The barley ripens in January, which would be plague number seven. And we see very distinct language, which indicates um, what point of the harvest we were at when that plague hits um we also have uh of course the 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 east winds which bring the locusts and that typically was march and april we have the passover which would have happened around april of course we know march or april as well um based on the calendar and it even tells us when that passover was so again maybe these plagues took place over a nine month span maybe they took place over a year and nine months span. Maybe they took place one right after the other. But either way, I think we just need to leave room in our minds for the fact there may have been these gaps where these reprieves, where hearts grew cold and they grew hard and they forgot um, the works of Yahweh, this answer to the question of Exodus 5 two: who is the Lord that I should obey his voice. Now, it's also, I think, very important to see the vitality of obedience. And I love how Aaron and Moses, from this point, we now just see them, if I can say, in the game. And the reason I say in the game is because we, we see God use this language in Exodus chapter 10 when he talks about making a sport um, of the Egyptians. But the, the, the reason I say this is their minds are in. They're saying, All right, thus says the Lord, we're moving forward. And and we can see this in the language. God tells them to go in verse 15. He tells them to say in verse 16, to tell and to take and to stretch in verse 19. In other words, all these actions. And this is the same calling for us as representatives of God, uh, ambassadors of Christ, as we saw in 2 Corinthians 5 20, that we too have a message to go into all the world, to make disciples to baptize, to teach them, to observe. Um, in other words, we have a responsibility as witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so uh, the first thing that we see here, like I mentioned what I pray for my friends, is a shaking up of their peace. And we see two different ways. Um, it's a shaking up of their confidence, but also a shaking up of their comfort. So let's think through this. Um, scholars have Observe various reasons for why the time and place specifically of this first plague is important. What do we know? We know in verse 15 it's in the morning as he is going out to the water. And then a little later on, we see that he's not going out to the water by himself, but that he also is in the sight of his servants in verse 20. Um, So, what does that represent and what is the importance of it? He could have been going to bathe, some suggest that, Um, but also we have to understand that the Nile has quite a few deities associated with it, which we're going to discuss, Um, and there were the times that he would go down to the river to see how high it was for when to plant crops and, and so on, but I want to suggest it was for worship, that he was going down there to worship, worship the Nile and worship the gods of the Nile. Um, to worship the sun, even as that first light uh, came on the Nile. Now remember, Pharaoh also believed that it, he was the, the son of the sun god, Ra, and therefore he would have been honoring um, his supposed father god, um, even at this moment. So the, either way, I, I think that there was definitely a reverence and a worship of gods that are happening whenever Pharaoh would go down to the Nile. But what is God doing here? What is God doing in saying, Moses, this is where I want you to go for this plague. In other words, I'm choosing my placement of this plague to be at the Nile as you are about to worship. Um, Not you, but Pharaoh. See, God interrupts idol worship. God interrupts the places where we go to worship that which is not God. Now, we don't worship the same gods by name that Pharaoh would have been worshiping, and we'll talk about some of these gods here in a minute. Gods like Osiris and Gnum and Happy, but what kind of gods do we have? You see, we might not have um, the god of the Nile, but we might worship the god of Nasdaq. We might not worship that water, but we worship Wall Street. You see... What did the Nile represent in Egyptian life? Well, the Nile represented economic prosperity. Without a doubt, the river was their lifeblood. It was the basis of the entire civilization on which they were built. Um, But think about it. The Nile was so much more than that. It was their transportation system. Um, In fact, it wasn't just their transportation system. It defined their country. I lived in Egypt for years, and Egypt is divided into Upper Egypt and Lower Egypt. But Lower Egypt is actually Northern Egypt, and Upper Egypt is actually Southern Egypt. are these things because it's all about the way the Nile flows, the Upper Nile and the Lower Nile. It was the irrigation system that allowed them to grow their crops, the flooding of the Nile. It was their water supply by which they drank. It was their food supply, not only in helping them grow their crops, but also because the fish in the Nile which they ate. Now mind you there were a few that 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 were deities to them, so I guess um, it's not that good when you catch one of your gods on your hook. Um, I guess you have to throw that one back. But Then you've got the river's annual floods, which set their calendar. So the Nile even set their calendar. It gave them phenomenal, fertile, topsoil. This is the Nile. It represents so much more than merely merely going to worship a so-called god. And I just wonder... How many of these things we go to for our source of trust, for our source of confidence? See, they may have gone to the Nile, seen it as the provider of all these different things and associating gods with each one. We might not associate gods with our economic prosperity and with our physical comfort and with our, uh, with, with our abundance of food and our abundance of various things that we enjoy and our entertainment and, 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 and our whatever it might be. But the reality is anything we're going to as our source of confidence is ultimately an idol that we're worshiping other than God. In other words, when that is our source of hope for tomorrow, when that thing fails us and we have depression and we have anxiety because we no longer have that river to go to, well, what's it saying? It's saying that we are putting a confidence in God that which will not last um i mean we saw this somewhat in covid right Um, when covid hit and stock market struggled and price of gas started rising and supplies of maybe um whatever supply chain issues uh went on and and stores started running out of food there was a lot of anxiety there was a panic attacks there were um a lot of questions being asked you know Chaos ensues when gods are touched, and I would strongly suggest that that's what we saw. We started to see a clinging to government for hope rather than an opportunity for the gospel to go out. Um, And so I ask, where is our confidence? Now, the Nile, life in Egypt, um, it's a little bit like some of those towns that you drive through when you're like on a road trip. And I mean, many different countries uh, in Senegal where I grew up. You would see these um, villages, which are just like long villages, but they're all along the side of the road. Why? Because that's their source of transportation. That's the source of of commerce. That's where they I mean, that's their economic centers. And if you go in, you know, 200 meters, you go in half a kilometer, you're not going to find any more houses. All the houses are built in a long strip along the side of the road. Um, Same thing is true of a, a, a town or not a city that Saudi Arabia envisions building. It's called The Line. And you can check out their website. There's a lot, they boast no car, no roads, cars, or emissions. It's gonna run on 100% renewable energy. 95% of the land will be preserved for nature. And this is what they say on their website. Only 200 meters wide, but 170 kilometers long, 500 meters above sea level. The Line, which is what it's called, will eventually accommodate 9 million people and be built on a footprint of just 34 square kilometers. This means a reduced infrastructure footprint, creating never-before-seen efficiencies in city functions. Ideal climate all year round will ensure residents can enjoy the surrounding nature. Residents will have access to all facilities within a five-minute walk, in addition to a high-speed rail with an end-to-end transit of 20 minutes. Now, why do I share all that? I share it because this is a picture of Egypt as well. Egypt is built along the Nile, even still today. Most of the cities of Egypt, except for the ones on the Red Sea, are built along the Nile. Why? Because the Nile is this source of life. And you understand that when we're talking about the Nile as a source of life, they attributed it to their gods. And like I mentioned before, there were a few gods, and we could mention quite a few gods. I'll limit it to just a few gods that were worshipped in regards to the Nile. One was Osiris, the god of the Nile, and he was even depicted with... uh, with the river running through his bloodstream. The body and blood of Osiris was indeed the Nile. And so the yearly flooding, it symbolized the miracle, the miraculous rebirth of Osiris, the god of earth and vegetation was back according to the Egyptians. So Osiris was worshipped at the Nile. We have Kanum, the ram god. And uh, we actually mentioned him back in episode 3, and I encourage you, go back and watch that if you don't remember. But in the episode, Unexpected Heroes, there's some huge significance to Canum as a god who's depicted sitting at a potter's wheel and uh, his position as the source of the Nile. So he's shown holding a jar from which water flows. So this is the source of the Nile, the source of fertility, this fertility god um, associated with water and uh, procreation. So again, Canum would have been worshipped at the Nile, but maybe the god that is more associated with the Nile than any other would be happy, H-A-P-I, happy. And let me say, he didn't bring happiness, but his name was Happy. He was a fertility god, and um, he was portrayed as a bearded man, but he had female breasts and a, and a pregnant stomach. In fact, if you um, if you have ever seen currency from Egypt, this is the five-pound note, five-pound note, and on the five-pound note, you actually have happy, depicted on it, and what's interesting about Happy, well, there's a lot of things interesting about Happy, but the annual flooding of the Nile was viewed as what gave birth to Egypt and nursed its strength, so that's why she's the giver of life, that's why you see she feeds them from her own body. She's also called the Lord of Sustenance, um, the one who causes the whole land to live through His provisions, although obviously with some female parts there. But here's what's interesting. Do you know they had a praise song for happy? They had a song for this God. This is what they sang. They would sing, Hail to your countenance, happy, who goes up from the land, who comes to deliver Egypt, who brings food, who is abundant of provisions, who creates every sort of good thing, who fills upper and lower Egypt, Everything that has come into being is through his power. Can you imagine? Hail, hail to your countenance, happy. Uh, I do think that there is an irony that all these gods of Egypt are on forms of money. Every every piece of um, Egyptian currency has on one side a mosque, and on the other side we have um, some form of... Egyptian history, typically a pharaoh or a god. And of course, pharaohs were regarded as gods. Um, And I just find that interesting since what we're holding in our hand is oftentimes the god of this age. But with happy, we see another image of the Nile. So what is God doing? Well, God's shaking up their peace, their source of confidence. The Nile would have been their source of confidence. It was also their source of comfort. And now what's God about to do? Well, he's about to touch the Nile and make it blood. Um, even saying that does um, does just beg a little question here. Uh, and that question is, was it actually blood? Well, the word is dumb and it occurs 150 times in the Pentateuch, and it's always used of real biological blood, except for two times, Genesis 49:11 and Deuteronomy 32:14, where it speaks figurative, figuratively of the blood of a grape, a grape. So, the redness of the grape. But, um, if Moses had simply meant that the Nile turned red, um, first he could have definitely used a lot of other words to describe that. Um, I really do I do believe that it was in some way actually blood, um, and we also see that it affected the water in the storage containers. We see that this miracle was not just the turning of the Nile red; this was truly the hand of God that changed the very substance of what it was. Um, and we're going to see in verse sixteen that the act of God here. Um, in fact, like let's look at verse sixteen again. Um, you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. Uh, but so far you have not obeyed. I want you to see that what God is doing here in before turning the water to blood is saying. Uh, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you. I've already declared the word of God. You've already heard what God wanted. This is not a matter of like uh, 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 of, um, you know, your. You don't know what to do. You've refused very clearly what I've already told you to do. He has sent me to you. Now, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, reiterating what was said. So, um, I just want to remind us that, that God's mercy is also seen here in the sense that He's already given Him a chance to avoid this particular plague, but it's going to affect the waters of Egypt, the streams of Egypt. It's going to affect the, the, the lesser canals. It's going to affect the ponds. It's going to affect the pools. But in thinking through all of these, I want to draw our attention to the pools. Now, this is a fascinating word. I don't want to read too much into it, but the word is mikvah, where also you might recognize it. it's used oftentimes for baptismal pools, um, but mikvah, and it can also be translated, get this expectation hope or confidence and of course it also has the secondary meaning which we're more familiar with which is a congregation or a gathering together which is why it's a pool it's a gathering together of water but i want us to think about this the word is expectation hope or confidence and it's used actually in relation to god numerous times like jeremiah 14 8, o you hope of israel That's the word. Or in seventeen thirteen, O Lord, the hope of Israel. All who all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Hope again, mikva, chapter fifty, verse seven of Jeremiah. All who found them have devoured them. Their enemies have said, "We are not guilty, for they've sinned against the Lord, the habitation of righteousness, the Lord, the hope of their fathers." The hope. Mikva. Well, I mentioned this because I think there's a deep significance here and that significance is that just like a pool is a place where water was saved in times of need or in a, uh, or is a place of provision for people and maybe a um, maybe an ideal location. I want you to understand that this became a source of confidence so a pool was a hope a pool was an expectation a pool was a confidence it's saying when the provision is not where i think provision should be or when the provision isn't in an ideal location i have a pool i have a hope i have a gathering place and what i find fascinating about that is god makes sure to mention as we walk through this passage that even the pools even the mikvahs are going to be filled with blood just a reminder that God shakes up our peace our confidence our comfort zones but more than just that God also shows us our predicament and how does he do that well he comes he allows Aaron to touch the water and it becomes blood in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants um by saying he shows us our predicament i really like the way a, a commentator named rod matun put it he put what was loved was now loathed what was desired was now despised what was worshiped was now wretched the object of adoration was an abomination isn't that interesting The very place that they went for worship, the very place that they revered, the very place they saw as their source of confidence was now a source of disillusionment, a source of discouragement, a source of depression. And this is a very potent point for all of us to take note of. Because this is what God wants to do. He wants to show us our true predicament. He wants to show the reality of the things where we oftentimes do place our hope. In verse 18, it even mentions the fish of the Nile shall die and the Nile will stink and Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. Um some translations uh, say the Egyptians will loathe the the, the Nile, um, and, and to loathe means literally to be weary or to be impatient. So think about that: they're frustrated, they're impatient, they're weary of the very things that they used to find their hope in. Their gods had failed them, and of course I, I would say, oh well, praise God, their gods failed them, except for the fact of how do they respond? They respond with independence. They respond in defiance. In other words, they're going to go and do their own thing. They're not going to repent and go to who is the Lord, the God of Israel, the God of the Hebrews. They're going to go and dig. They're going to go look for water in another place. They're going to go look for another source of confidence instead of turning to the one that had power over their sources of confidence. It's very interesting because we read, I believe it's in verse 19, um, At the end of verse 19, yes, it says that this blood will be throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. The Hebrew is literally blood in the wood and in the stone. Um, We have vessels put in there because they think it brings clarity, but could it be that that's just an assumption? Um, Maybe it's not just the vessels of wood and stone. Maybe it's in the wood and stone because wood and stone was actually a, a phrase which was used for God's for false gods, wood and stone. Blood was even in the wood and stone. In Deuteronomy 29, 16, it says, you know how we lived in the land of Egypt, how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. Verse 17, and you have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, which were among them. Um, in fact, uh, Umberto Cassuto, who we've quoted before he has a commentary on the book of exodus he claimed that egyptian priests would actually wash their idols every morning so maybe that's what they were going down to do to wash their idols i don't know but if true just imagine they had to wash their idols in blood and blood was an abominable thing for egyptians so god turned their river into blood to show how utterly worthless how contemptible it is to worship gods of wood and stone. It reminds me of a song by Bill and Gloria Gaither along with JD Miller. And uh, it goes, I went to worship, i went. I'm sorry, I, I went to visit the shrine of plenty, but found its storerooms all filled with dust. I bowed at altars of gold and silver, but as I knelt there, they turned to rust. And the, the chorus goes, So I'll worship only at the feet of Jesus. His cup alone, my holy grail, there'll be no other gods before thee. Just Jesus only will never fail. Um, What a great reminder that we have a place to go worship that never will fail. But with that said, um, going to verse 21, I did mention that the fish in the Nile are mentioned and the fish are mentioned again. But why are the fish singled out? Well, for one reason, there were numerous fish, like I mentioned before, that were considered sacred to uh, the Egyptians, and fish are actually infrequently mentioned through the Old Testament, Um, but I do encourage you, do a study on them sometime, and and you'll see some beautiful patterns, but it is interesting that fish at the very beginning in Genesis 1, it just shows brimming with life. It shows what God has put there, and yet in Egypt when we see fish, we see fish in these places of false worship. We see fish stinking. We see fish dying. Um, It's really this decreation taking place, and yet when God speaks of his millennial reign coming in Ezekiel 47, what do we find? We find that that they're going to swarm. The seas are going to swarm with fish. The water is going to become fresh Fishermen will stand by the sea from Ein Gedi to Enneglahim. It will be a place for spreading nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds like the fish of the great sea. Um, But let's move on. Verse 22. Verse 22 is a sobering um, verse because it shows the way the enemy likes to work. It says, But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh's magicians did the same. What did they do? They made more blood. They found clean water somewhere, and they turned that into something that fooled at least uh, Pharaoh, and it gave him enough confidence to say, I'm not going to bow to the God of Israel. Ah, this is just the way the enemy works. They couldn't change the the blood back into water. They couldn't fix the, the problem at hand, so what do they do? They made more of the problem. And this is what the enemy does with his workings. He only pushes us deeper into our predicament. Um, Yes, God shows us our predicament. But then what does the enemy do? The enemy shoves us even deeper into that predicament. Um, There wasn't much good water around. They needed good water. But what the magicians do, they took even the good water and they made it more blood. Um, It's dumb, And yet, this is the way Satan works, and we fall prey to his working so often in rejecting God. See, he robbed them of even common sense in the way that they are acting here. Um, and, And the reality is the enemy just wants us to ruin our lives. He wants to create more problems for those who are running from God, and yet he does it in deceitful ways that actually make us turn our back on God rather than turning to the only one, who can solve our problem. And that brings us to the last point where we want to hang out for a few minutes, and that is that God sticks to his plan. He shakes up their peace, he shows us their, our predicament, and then he sticks to his plan. What do I mean he sticks to his plan? Well, uh, notice they're going to try to solve the problem by self-effort, aren't they? They're not going to turn to the God of the Hebrews, the God of Israel, this Yahweh. They're going to dig around. They're going to look for their own way to be saved. And is that not what the world does through religion all the time? If I do enough good works to outweigh my bad works, like we talked about the book of the dead, if I somehow um, just you know, do it my way, um, then it'll be okay. God says drastically different. He sticks to his plan. He says there's only one way to me one way to God and that is through righteousness and the only way we can be righteous is through the righteousness of Jesus Christ who was sinless and yet took our sin on himself and dealt with it See, Moses is the lawgiver, but Jesus is the life-giver. The first plague or the first sign that Moses brought to Egypt was turning water to blood, a sign of judgment. What is the first sign that Jesus came bringing in John chapter 2? He didn't turn the water to blood. He showed up not at the water, but he showed up at a wedding and he turned water Into wine, not a a picture of judgment, but a picture of joy. See, we have a drastic difference between the Lord Jesus Christ and what we see here in Moses. Moses came bringing condemnation to the land of Israel, but Jesus came bringing salvation to all who would turn to him. And yet, what we need to recognize is what happened in Exodus will happen again in a similar way in the book of Revelation. And yet, the question is, Will we reject the God who does sit on the throne, and will we have to bear the consequences of that judgment? Or will we enter into life through the forgiveness that's offered through the work of Jesus Christ? See, in Revelation chapter 16, verse 3, 3 all the way through verse 7 it says this the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood and I heard the angel in charge of the water say just are just are you O Holy One who is and was for you brought these judgments for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink it is what they deserve and I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. This sounds so similar to what happened back in Exodus. Even in Revelation 8, 8, when the second angel blows the trumpet, it says something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. Again, similar thing. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. See, God struck ten mighty blows against Egypt, against the Egyptians and their gods. But the question is, are we going to refuse the one who took the blows for us, the one who was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, where the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed, if indeed we turn to him. And so the question is, will we turn to him James Boyce um, wrote about this, and he said the first two plagues were against the gods of the Nile. The next four were against the land gods. The final four plagues were against the gods of the sky, culminating in the death of the firstborn. And, and, And I just say that because understand God's going to stick to his plan from the very beginning. He's going to systematically walk through and attack these gods of confidence, sources of hope. When one god fails, well, they had another god to turn to. And God is going to go from one to the next and say, wherever you put your hope, wherever you are looking, I'm going to come in, I'm going to step in and show that that god will indeed fail you. In fact, if you look at the plagues from another way, the first three plagues... You've got to look down. It's the water of the earth. It's the frogs coming out of the Nile. It's the dust of the earth that's touched and the gnats come. So they stop looking down. What do they do? They look out. They look out at that ground level, at the human level. And what happens? We have flies. We have pestilence. We have boils. Okay? They can't look down. They can't look out. So then they look up. And what happens when they look up? Well, you have plagues seven, eight, and nine. You've got hail that comes down. You've got the locusts filling the sky. You have darkness around the earth. They have nowhere to look. And yet, what happens? They still don't turn. Pharaoh still sits on the throne. And then, of course, the death of the firstborn is going to ensue. Robert Ingersoll, who lived in the 1800s, he was an American lawyer, writer, but he was known for... Um, his, his speeches, um, specifically um, as an agnostic. He was nicknamed the Great Agnostic. And once he was uh, just uh, trying to tear apart a, a Christian, and he said, look, I'll give God a chance to prove that he exists and is almighty. I'll challenge him to strike me dead within five minutes. And it was a very uh, eerie five minutes. Uh, people were very uncomfortable. Some people left. One woman fainted. And anyway, after five minutes, he didn't die. And at the end of the allocated time, this atheist said very happily, See, there is no God. I am still very much alive. So then afterwards, this young man was kind of excited about uh, Ingersoll's uh, revelation. And he was saying to a young girl, he said, Well, Ingersoll really proved something tonight. And her reply was very memorable. She said, Yeah, he did. He demonstrated that even the most defiant sinner cannot exhaust the patience of the Lord in just five minutes. Now you love that? I'll read what she said again. Yes, he did. He demonstrated that even the most defiant sinner cannot exhaust the patience of the Lord in just five minutes. Just because somebody tells me, hey, punch me in the face, doesn't mean I'm going to punch him in the face. Um, like, that's me. That's a flawed human let alone a God who loves us more than we love ourselves, let alone a God who delights in showing mercy, a God who delights in redeeming sinners. And how does he do it? Through the perfect work of his beloved son, Jesus Christ. Friends, if you've never turned to him, you can have full forgiveness today. You don't have to be like Pharaoh. Keep sitting on your throne waiting for the next blow to come when there's one who's already taken the blows for you, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting. This plague is going to last seven days. This, along with the darkness and the Passover, only ones we know that the length of. But why seven days? I don't, I don't know. Maybe it was because they were supposed to go a three days journey into the wilderness, worship, and come back. Well, we know they were going to go on, but that that was the original thing said to Pharaoh. Let us go a three days journey into the wilderness to serve to worship, to sacrifice. Well, 3 days in, 1 day there, 3 days back, 7 days. Well, you're not worshiping, you're not letting them worship me. I'll give you 7 days of what it looks like to see your gods fall at my hand. I don't know. Maybe it was 7 days representing a week, showing creation, decreation, I don't know. But here's what I know. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. That's what Jesus Christ says in Luke chapter 13. That's really the conclusion of the matter. It's not about what sins you've committed. It's about the fact that you are a sinner. But the good news is there is a wonderful Savior. And he wants to lead you on an exodus. He wants to lead you out of a place of slavery and bondage. And these plagues are simply invitations to turn from your idols. To turn from the things that entrap you. To turn from the things that deceive you. To turn from the counterfeits of the world. And turn to the source of true life. May that be the response of each one of us. But for now, we are definitely out of time. So I invite you to go to www.intoyourbible.org to check out more, whether it be show notes or other resources that can encourage your heart. Share it with others if it's an encouragement to you, or if um, the Lord says uh, you think, or the Lord tells you somebody else needs to hear it. Um, But remember, this has been Into Your Bible, and this is a place where our prayer for you is that you would be one who loves the Word of God and the God of the Word. Thanks for listening to Into Your Bible, the podcast, an extension of the ministry of Rock International. This is a place where we dive into the Holy Bible, seeking a generation who loves the Word of God and the God of the Word. Wherever you listen, subscribe to not miss an episode. And if you want to take things a step further, leave a review so others can find it too. For free resources, show notes, and more, check out our website at www.intoyourbible.org. Until next time, keep diving in.